they want the full self-sovereign experience they can go right to the base layer they can get a cold card they can you know store their funds uh, if they want to do a self-custodial lightning wallet that's another choice that they can do there's, there's different trade-offs and advantages they get in order you know when they do that or they can use a custodial solution and basically as they as they kind of pick their own adventure on that they're basically solving for whatever need they have and the network's there for for them the way they want to use it Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin. I'm your host, Brady Swenson. Swan Signal Live pairs great guests for compelling discussions about Bitcoin and economics. In this one, investment strategist Lynn Alden and head of R&D at Swan, Pablo Fernandez, join us. What's going on, Sats fans? This is Brady Swenson, your host of Swan Signal Live. An awesome show today with Lynn Alden and Pablo. Uh, we are, well, <laughs> I call him Pablo because he's my friend, uh, Pablo Fernandez. Uh, this is going to be a great show. We're going to have Lynn talk about Lightning. She's been flexing her engineering side and digging into the Lightning Network, wrote a treatise on the Swan blog. You can find it uh, about the Lightning Network at swanbitcoin.com signal. Uh, it's fantastic. We're going to be diving into that today and uh, all other things lightning. Uh, Pablo is the head of R&D and platform at Swan, and um, he, uh, he does a lot of work on lightning as well. Before we dive in, I just want to pitch to you the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. That's happening November 10th and 11th in Santa Monica, California. That's uh, part of LA, uh, the LA area. And it's going to be absolutely incredible. It's going to be a kind of a a smallish, more intimate affair than what you might be used to at a big Bitcoin conference, 1,500, 2,000 people. But it's got enough, you know, enough size there to really be exciting and have a lot of energy. We'll have a great main stage, uh, incredible speaker lineup right now, including Lynn. Uh, we also have the Swan Dome, which we are resurrecting from Bitcoin 2021, where we had uh, three-person panels all day long inside the tent uh, talking Bitcoin. That was a big hit. So we're bringing that back as well to dive more into the Bitcoin community, have a little bit of fun there, do some trivia, maybe some music and some songs. We'll do, uh, of course, deep dives, more technical stuff there as well. So we've got all the bases covered uh, with uh, some great content from uh, the best Bitcoiners in the space. We'd love to have you there to join us uh, and, and just party and learn about Bitcoin and share our enthusiasm and love of this asset and what it means uh, to the world uh, moving forward. So we're all part of that uh, that movement, that revolution that's happening. It's super exciting. Let's get together and share that energy at pacificbitcoin.com. You can grab your tickets right now. Uh, one of They're pretty low prices right now. They're going to go up. So I suggest you act fast uh, and you can use uh, the code FOMO uh, to get uh, a discount there as well. A shout out to Neil uh, who is pitching and promoting the conference really hard. So I'm going to give him a little shout out. Use the code FOMO. Okay, let's dive into this conversation today with Pablo and Lynn. Welcome, Pablo. How's it going, man? Can you hear us, Pablo? Hey, guys. Yeah, I can hear you now. I okay, cool. My connection is uh, spotty. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Uh, super happy to be here. My first uh, SSL. So, yeah, yeah, excited to be here. And welcome, Lynn. Welcome back. I think this is about your 11,000th uh, Swan Signal Live. <laughs> Not sure the number, but I'm happy to be back. Yeah, we might have to verify that one, run the numbers. 
Uh, definitely uh, welcome back. And let's dive into lightning again. As I said just a minute ago, um, a, a topic that you are usually not um, speaking about. You're usually on the macro side of things, so it's really exciting uh, to have you here to talk about lightning. And uh, as I also mentioned, you have an engineering. Uh, past uh, in, in a past life. And so you're kind of flexing that right now. Um, let's just start with the very basics. Like what is the Lightning Network basic 101 for listeners who may be new to Bitcoin or new to Lightning? I'll start with you. Sure. sure. So the, the Bitcoin base layer is a broadcast network, uh, whereas Lightning is a, is a multi-sig you know, set of channels, a network of channels uh, that exists on top of the Bitcoin network um, and basically allows for much quicker payments um, but of course it's it's a newer system uh, there, it, there's more security challenges more complexity associated with it and and one thing I find interesting is if you look at the map of it it actually looks quite a bit like they like the internet did in the, in the early years um, and so basically instead of you know broadcasting your transaction to the network that gets incorporated into you know miners put them in the blocks and then it gets put in everyone's node uh, this is more of a true peer-to-peer -peer system or you know, peer to peer to peer hop. You basically you, you could hop from from node to node. And I find it interesting because you know I'm I I'm not super technical, especially in the software sense. I'm, I'm, I'm my background's more in the hardware sense. Um, but you know, when I did engineering management, I had to always understand software enough to basically manage some of the things we were doing uh, and basically pick between some of these different types of implementations and things like that. And so I try to understand it as best I can, and, but I still look at it more so from a macro perspective than a technical perspective. Uh, but of course, the, the technical side has to be understood enough to inform the, the macro side. And what I found interesting starting, uh, you know, a little, a little less than two years ago now was that I started to see that the network was reaching critical mass. Uh, and so I, did, I didn't cover it really in its early years. Um, uh, I wasn't even super into Bitcoin back then. Um, but once I got caught up to speed on the Bitcoin base layer, I started looking around at what else is going on in the ecosystem. And Lightning really caught my eye because I saw that, you know, it, it got some criticism for kind of, you know, building slowly and not being huge from the start. But due to the way it's fundamentally designed, that's how it had to be. Uh, basically, when you're building channel by channel by channel, you're basically slowly building a network effect over time. And even at the at you know back then, they were also you know they were purposely not trying to grow it super quickly because they were emphasizing security. And so what I started to see by the end of 2020 and into the really beginning of 2021 was that liquidity was was you know becoming truly usable, and uh, some of the apps and, and ecosystem around it were also becoming. Uh, pretty usable. And so I kind of, you know, talking to developers, you know, talking to Elizabeth Stark and others, I started to see that there's a probable, you know, inflection point there, that there's more than meets the eye uh, from kind of a macro perspective. And so uh, I've been pretty excited about that part. And I, I try to get a little, bit more, a little bit more technical on that part than I do with other parts of the ecosystem. So Pablo, do you want to add anything to that description of Lightning? Uh, and maybe just talk a little bit about if, if there's not too much to add talk a little bit about when you discovered lightning uh why you thought it was interesting why you have decided to work on the lightning layer um for swan yeah so first i'm going to round out uh, a little bit of what lean said um because she mentioned that even though she's focused on the macro aspect understanding the technical components and understanding what's behind um lightning behind bitcoin behind whatever you're looking at. Um, 
we, we are very susceptible to fall in love into narratives, uh, especially in Bitcoin, especially in everything surrounded crypto. Um, and narratives sound fantastic most of the time um, because they're crafted for that. And very, very, very often we find that there is absolutely no substance behind those narratives. Um, I, I think it's absolutely commendable that, that Lynn is looking at what's actually there, uh, what's narrative and what's, um, what's real, what's technically possible. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I am absolutely in love that, that with the fact that, that Lynn is going after, after looking at the bits and pieces of how all this stuff works and does it actually work or is all just like um like they do in, in crypto land with uh TLVs of um uh, log values of of just the same dollar a hundred times uh in, in, in different protocols built on top of each other. Um and going back to to what what, what you were asking, what what attracted me to lightning, I, I think lightning is it's a it's a super interesting um it's a super interesting I wouldn't say hack, but it's a it's a very interesting approach to to solving scalability um, in, in a way that is Lightning Network has very interesting nuances. Uh, so, for example, network it's 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 hard to say that it's actually a network. It's it's an emergent network because each connection, each channel, what we call a channel, each channel is a communication between those two peers they don't really need to talk in the same way. There is no consensus. There doesn't really need to be any kind of agreement throughout the entire network on how it operates. It, it's basically built at the margin, just two people, they connect among, among each other and they start exchanging fully valid Bitcoin transactions, which when I first read about basically how, how, how the Lightning Network works. Uh, I was absolutely in love with, with that idea of you and I, we create a channel uh, and we start sending back and forth value. It's just, we never um, post it to the, uh, to the Bitcoin blockchain, but we always have the possibility of posting it to the Bitcoin blockchain. So one of the criticisms that, that Lightning gets from, from altcoiners uh, is that, um, it, it's not it's not Bitcoin. It's an IOU, and it absolutely is not. It's it it is not the case that that Lightning are Bitcoin's IOUs. They are perfectly valid Bitcoin that any of the peers are at any point fully able to redeem. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's it's very interesting that it gets that um, bad publicity. Um, which is, yeah, again, fully, fully, fully uh, a misunderstanding of, of how uh, Lightning works. Um, and I started looking into Lightning, I think back in 20, 2018, 2019. Yeah, I think like by uh, the end of 2018. Um, and yeah, it was mostly not for medium of exchange or anything like that to pay with Bitcoin. It was just, I found it absolutely fascinating. The design was, it, it spoke to me. In, it, it absolutely appealed to, to my, my aesthetics. Um, yeah, and working, having the possibility of working at Swan to to bring some of uh, some binding functionalities, um, it's it's absolutely it's a dream. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about layers. I think that's another maybe the next sort of step in uh, 
fundamental explanation about how lightning works and why the protocol was expanded or extended in this way. Uh, we have a protocol stack, two protocols that work together in a similar fashion that run the internet itself. So TCP IP, it's often used as a, an analogy to the Bitcoin base layer as a protocol and the lightning layer as a protocol. So people will uh, have often uh, phrased it BTCLN as, uh, as, as a comparison to those two. So we also have in the financial system, the concept of layers, which has been explored in Nick Bhatia's book, Layered Money, um, quite extensively. So I thought that this was kind of interesting to talk about because there's also other approaches uh, on, on other altcoin protocols, like Ethereum, for example, where they decided instead, uh, or Bitcoin Cash, uh, decided instead to create a, a one protocol layer, basically, and, and put a lot more functionality into that protocol layer, the base protocol layer. So it'd be like uh, Bitcoin uh, adding a bunch of functionality to the base layer. Why did we choose to go with a layered approach from both a protocol and a financial perspective? Why is why is that the right approach? Lynn, you want to start on this one? Well, so part of it is is no one even made the decision. Uh, it just kind of had to happen out of nowhere because uh, any attempts to change uh, the the base layer uh, proved futile uh, compared to the the near immutability of that layer. And so it wasn't like you know there was one person that decided this is the way it's going to scale. Uh, this was you know it was a, it was it was a conscious design for a number of developers to scale with with what they had to work with. But the base layer uh, has been pretty much set you know, nearly in stone other than soft forks uh, from the beginning. And people also saw that, you know, there's a reason why those hard forks didn't really work out. Part of this has to do with network effects, but it's also about design decisions. So the problem with the problem with blockchains is that they're so inefficient. Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, the common saying is that they're, they're bad for most things um, other than something that has to be super decentralized. And so if you, you know, try to scale too much on the base layer, uh, you make it very, very hard to run a node, uh, which basically removes the indiv individual self-sovereignty, which kind of defeats the point of, of what Bitcoin is. Uh, and it's what a lot of other cryptocurrencies have done. And so, but of course, the big challenge there is that, you know, in its current form, Bitcoin can only scale to so many transactions uh, and it's pretty slow. Um, so it has these limitations uh, for mass usability. And in engineering in general, uh, and in finance, uh, scaling in layers is kind of the, the hack uh, that fixes a lot of things. And partially it's because, you know, modularity uh, is basically the name of the game in engineering, basically that if, if things get super complex, one thing you can do is break them into pieces uh, that, you know, can conceptually work on their own, but then they, they click back together and they're, and they're des designed uh, to connect to each other. And we also see in finance that, you know, in a similar way, that Bitcoin has trouble, you know, scaling without breaking too many aspects of itself on one layer. The, the finance system we've been familiar with for, you know, decades and, and going back, you know, centuries uh, has a similar problem that, that, you know, banks can't scale the types of transactions they do all on one layer. And so instead we see a, a stack of multiple different types of payments. Uh, and so basically what, what the whole kind of the, the, the Bitcoin design process has evolved towards uh, is this more layered approach where you have a, a nearly immutable base layer. Uh, it changes very, very slowly and very cautiously. Uh, it's, it's you know, purposely difficult to change it. Uh, that's kind of the value proposition. That's more of a feature than a bug. Uh, 
but then on top of that, people can build all sorts of different things. Uh, there's federated side chains, uh, there's merge mine, uh, and, and lightning is interesting because it's, it, it's, you know, the fastest growing and it's, it's arguably, you know, brings, brings the network closest to its original conception, which is, you know, in addition to being a store of value, the ability to make very quick, uh, payments with it. And so if anyone's not seen a video, you can look online and, and watch someone paying with a phone with lightning. And it's just as fast in many cases, paying with a credit card and, and similarly levels of convenience, especially as the, the user experience, the, these, you know, the different apps have gotten better over time. So Pablo, can you expand a little bit on the, if the history a little uh, of the TCP IP protocol, why, how that developed, were there other, uh, competing protocols at that point against TCP IP? Like we have competing protocols for transfer value over the internet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there were, I don't remember a history lesson, but uh, <laughs> I studied this when I was like 12 years old, but uh, <laughs> there were, for real, it was my favorite book, was a book on TCP IP when I was 12 years old. Um, Let's go. <laughs> yeah, there, there, were a bunch of, there were a bunch of protocols um, competing for, for the same idea. Um, IP became a, a super popular protocol. Um, I think it started being adopted uh, by universities. Um, and then TCP became, became um, it's, it's called Transport Control Protocol. And what, what TCP brings to the table is the capability of establishing connections. So when we had IP before, there wasn't the concept of creating a connection between two peers and exchanging data. So TCP brought a bunch of functionality that wasn't available in, in the IP protocol um, to make sure that if I send you a packet and it gets lost in the way, there is, there, is, um, there is a protocol that will allow us to know that, okay, I sent you three packets, you only received two of them, you missed the second one, for example. Um, and so I can resend it. And TCP handles all the stuff for you. So you as an application developer, you don't need to concern yourself with what's the status of the cable that I'm using to transfer this, this information. So each, each layer uh, abstracts complexity that the previous layer has to, has to contend with. So for example, within, with Bitcoin, um, the, the Bitcoin consensus um, uh, protocol is, is extremely hard. And if you make a, make a mistake or if, if you do something that is outside of consensus, you fork away and you are not part of the Bitcoin network any, anymore. So uh, someone that is developing with uh, a Lightning implementation is able to rely on the Bitcoin protocol without having to concern themselves with um, how to properly speak Bitcoin, uh, because at the end of the day, protocols are languages, um, and there, there, it, there is only this way in which protocols and, and technology and life evolves. Uh, it's building using building blocks. So, for example, our cells have a bunch of bacteria. Those bacteria were created at some point, and then they become building blocks to more and more and more complex organisms. Um, and and uh, lightning is a, is a phenomenal. It's not the only, but it's a phenomenal. Um, it's a phenomenal layer on to, on top of Bitcoin, and it it speaks 
Bitcoin natively. It doesn't use any kind of uh, side chain or 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 merge mining chain or anything like that. It it, it speaks its native Bitcoin speak. There is no new verbiage uh, created to to have uh, Lightning. So in that sense, Lightning's more like TCP. So yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Which the direct connections between two parties, etc. So, and I just remembered now that that it's being referred to as LNPBP for Lightning Network Protocol, Bitcoin Protocol. So you might hear that uh, that phrase, that acronym, more often as we move forward. Lynn, can we talk just a little bit about layer, the layers of money and why it's inevitable, perhaps, to see these layers being developed on top of the Bitcoin base layer? And what other types of money or assets could you see being developed on top of Bitcoin? Is it basically, can we replace the financial system that we have now with all of its layers and abstractions of money with Bitcoin? I think we're kind of slowly seeing that happen, uh, but in a more decentralized and emergent and self-custodial way. Um, uh, using different rails, uh, and so if we look at the at the current financial system, the way it's structured, uh, you have you know major settlement systems. Uh, they're often run by a central bank or a consortium of banks, and what they do is they settle large, like uh, small numbers, relatively small numbers, kind of like you know, uh, you know, mil millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions a year, uh, which is small in a global sense, uh, of these gigantic transactions. And those are settlements between banks uh, that you know are, are generally each in the millions of dollars. And they represent these large settlement transactions that actually consist of multiple consumer transactions and business transactions at a higher layer. And so for example, when you use a when you use your Visa card, uh, you know, that's not the core of the system. You're depending on how you define it, I mean you're you're you know three, four layers up on the stack. Um, and so basically we have this this kind of process where you have these you know, if you look at Fedwire, for example, that that's that's uh, one of the major settlement networks in the United States, uh, and it, it's operated as one of my guess for the name by the Fed. And you have this gross interbank settlement system, and it actually it's funny. It actually does about as many transactions per year as the as the Bitcoin network, kind of rough order of magnitude. Um, but it settles, you know, literally hundreds of trillions of dollars uh, per year in, in gross figures, uh, because these represent banks sending gigantic transactions to each other. And you know, most of us are using that system without even interfacing with it ever. Um, we, we don't even know most of us that we're using it, uh, but just by participating with our bank and using these other types of, of uh, ways of moving money more quickly for smaller amounts, um, we, we end up using that indirectly. And I remember you know, Elizabeth Stark would, would say, for example, that in the future, she envisions people using you know, Bitcoin and Lightning without even necessarily realizing that they're using it. Um, and I, I think that's the kind of ecosystem we could see built over time, which is that in addition to Bitcoin, in addition to Lightning, in addition to some of these side chains that give a little bit more express, expressivity, similar to what you'd see in, in, in smart contract blockchains, you also then have a custodial system. And that's kind of controversial to some people, but some people want some degree of custodialship or want to build a cost one on the phone, or for whatever reason, they, they want that business relationship. And that's yet another scaling method on top of the stack. And so, for example, um, at, you know, as of several months ago, technically everybody with a Cash App account can access Lightning. Um, and and so, you know, basically you have this kind of layered approach. And we could see more layers again. I mean, there's other things like channel factories and stuff that could that could scale things further. Uh, they get a little bit more 
a little bit above my technical pay grade. But essentially, you have this, you know, much like kind of Bitcoin represents almost like a decentralized Fedwire system mixed with, you know, its own unit, gold, basically. So you have like digital gold combined with Fedwire. And on top of that, you have, you know, Lightning's kind of like Visa. And then, you know, on top of that, you have these other other types of, of interfaces. And I think that, you know, what we're seeing is that, you know, that basically gives users the option to use it in a way that makes sense for them, right? So if they want the full self-sovereign experience, they can go right to the base layer, they can get a cold card, they can, you know, uh, store their funds. Uh, if they want to do a self-custodial Lightning wallet, that's another choice that they can do. Uh, there's, there's different trade-offs and advantages they get in order, you know, when they do that, or they can use a custodial solution. And basically, as they as they kind of pick their own adventure on that, they're basically solving for whatever need they have, and the network's there for for them the way they want to use it. So, Pablo, there are new third layer protocols or improvements to the Lightning protocol that are bringing in new functionality to Bitcoin and Lightning. For instance, the Tarot protocol is is new, um, and there are others as well. Do you want to give us just an overview of, of Tarot and how we can add new assets uh, to Bitcoin and Lightning using that protocol and maybe some others that are interesting to you right now? Pablo, I think you're muted, bud. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, there are qu there are quite a few there are quite a few different proposals. Uh, there there are being proposals for for quite a while. Um, there there is a synonym working on omnibolts on Lightning, which is the the original way in which Tether was was created um, on on the Bitcoin blockchain, and the idea is to have. Uh, Omnivolt working on Lightning, so the, with the idea of being able to transmit USDT uh, over Lightning. And yeah, Tower is a, is a proposal, so it's a very interesting proposal, very similar to RGV, uh, which was proposed, I think, in 2015 or 2016. Um, and yeah, the idea is to basically use uh, RGV with Taproot. Um, so the idea is to be able to issue uh, within a single um, a single transaction, um, any number of, of assets. So within a single transaction, you could issue USDT and USDC and an NFT or something like that if you want to do that for some reason. Um, Taurus is still a, a proposal. Uh, as far as I know, there is no code written. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a super interesting proposal. It's extremely, extremely early days. Um, it will be very, very interesting uh, for, I mean, I'm, I'm from Argentina. For me, uh, this, there is a, a bit of discussion uh, in, in Bitcoin whether uh, stable coins have a, have a role or if, uh, like Matovel says, uh, SATs are the stable coin. Uh, to me, that's, it, it sounds beautiful, but it's not the reality for a, a lot of people. And there is a, for sure, there is a very important case for for stable coins, um, and yeah, but being able to issue stable coins on on Bitcoin, to me, it sounds very appealing. We we've, we've seen what happened this week with uh, or yeah, this week with uh, Tornado Cash. Um, we we've seen what happens when the state decides to um, nuance the uh, try to push a little bit um, some of the providers. 
uh, that inter interface with Ethereum to, to censor and, and how quick that was. Even though, yes, they do not censor at the protocol level, the fact that running an Ethereum node is so hard, most people just don't do it, which de facto means there is censorship. Um, even if maybe five or 10 people or 100 people are able to, to um, go beyond the censorship. Um, and the fact that Bitcoin cannot be censored um, makes the issuance of assets something interesting. Excellent. So, Pablo, you mentioned to me when we were talking about this episode a couple of days ago that there was a paper with a bunch of FUD in it uh, about about Lightning. What are and Lynn, you can jump in on this too. Um, what are some of the more prevalent critiques of Lightning out there, and and some answers to those critiques? And I'll maybe you can give us one or two, Pablo, and I'll we'll leave a couple for Lynn as well. Cool. Yeah. So my, my favorite uh, critique of Lightning, well, I mean, my favorite, my, the, the, the low-hanging fruit <laughs> critique of Lightning is that um, it's a, it's Bitcoin IO use, but I've already addressed that one, but uh, it, it's not. Um, but the second, other than that one, would be uh, the fact that, that Lightning is uh, centralized. Um, and because of that centralization, then Lightning is uh, is not censorship resistant. Um, I, I I had a change of heart because I remember last year I remember starting a bunch of projects because I did agree that Lightning has uh, centralizing tendencies, and I started to think okay in the different different projects that I could work on to make um, make it technically less less prone to be centralized. Um, at the time I was living in, in Costa Rica, my pa I was Pablo, having power out. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but how exactly could Lightning become centralized? Just certain nodes uh, become very big, lots of channels, and so are routing lots of payments and therefore have some kind of power in the network? Is that how it happens? Yeah, yeah that's exactly how it happens. If you think about, uh, if you start running a node, uh, and you start, you have one Bitcoin to deploy for Lightning. And you think, okay, what's the most capital efficient way of me using this Bitcoin in a way that I will be able to route? You will have to pick good channel partners. The best way to pick a good channel partner is someone that will tend to route successfully to you. Um, and, and in that sense, it makes sense for me as, a, as someone that has one Bitcoin uh, on Lightning to open my channel with Bitfinex, with um, I, I don't know, a, a zero, zero fee or any kind of, a, any number of very big nodes. It doesn't make sense for me to open a node, to open a channel with someone that has 100,000 sats or half a Bitcoin. Um, and, and those, those uh, incentives are applied to the whole network. So the whole network starts going um, going in the same direction, which means that centralization and the same same thing happened. What I was mentioning is that I was living in Costa Rica and I was having constant power outages, which meant that my Lightning node wasn't uh, accessible for a couple of hours every single day, um, and that that me means that my channel partners would never want to route with me because I wasn't being a very good peer. Um, so all these tendencies 
keep reinforcing themselves. Um, and this is actually, and that's why I was mentioning that I had a change of heart because I thought this was a problem. And then I realized that it's not a problem. The, what we need to keep is the optionality of creating new channels. So if someone, I'm trying to pay someone and I'm being censored, I can always go to the base chain and create a channel directly to whomever I want to pay. Uh, so even though, yes, it is centralized, the optionality of not being centralized means that censorship is not a problem. Nice. That's a good one. Really important one. Lynn, do you have any critiques in mind that perhaps you addressed in your paper? Sure. And actually, I, I think I could add to that one as well. Cool. Um, and so uh, obviously de levels of decentralization matter differently on different layers, right? So on the Bitcoin base layer, decentralization is almost all that matters. Um, you know, basically optimizing for the most possible decentralization, uh, because that's what's enforcing, you know, the basically complete network censorship uh, at the base layer, as well as enforcing the rules of the network, uh, including monetary, uh, you know, supply and things like that. Um, whereas in the lightning layer, what you're mainly worried about is the risk of censorship. And so kind of the worst thing that can happen is, is you know, aside from certain challenges that can make you lose your coins, but in a, in a practical sense, basically getting censored uh, from a large node and that optionality is key. And, and I think, you know, when, when people kind of theorize about how this works, they, they over engineered in their head um, and they want to design for every possible thing and basically almost pursue decentralization for decentralization's sake, whereas it's, it's ultimately about, you know, designing for the end goal in mind. And so Bitcoin at the base layer needs to be super decentralized, whereas th that optionality on the Lightning Network is, is what makes it so useful because it's not, you know, the Lightning, the lightning layer is not enforcing the money supply. It's not enforcing, you know, the consensus rules. You're just routing in individual payments. Um, and other types of criticisms are, you know, a lot of the early criticisms were, were valid because it's a, it's a young network. Um, you know, over time, the usability has started off poor and it's gotten it's gotten much better as as more and more apps are being built and more liquidity is being built and more uh, interesting designs and, and solutions are being proposed and implemented. Um, one of the criticisms that still exists uh, and there's some validity too is is that although it's generally a privacy improvement compared to the base layer. Uh, it, it's by no means perfect privacy, uh, especially for the recipient. Uh, it generally offers pretty good privacy for the sender, uh, but the recipient is still very um, exposed. Um, and then even for the sender, it's not absolutely perfect guaranteed privacy. There are ways to surveil the network. Um, and so I think the key thing to keep in mind there is that there are a lot of things being worked on uh, to continue making the Lightning Network more private over time. Um, so there's ways to make it harder to surveil, uh, you know, where the payment originated, where it's going, if you manage to get snapshots of it on the network. And there's also proposals uh, to make the recipient a, a lot more private and kind of match them compared to the sender in terms of levels of privacy. And so I think, and there's also, you know, there's there's fediments that kind of act like these, you know, they're both custodians, but then they also are these kind of like, you know, they're blind custodians that allow for uh, improved fungibility. Uh, on the network. And so I think that it kind of on multiple fronts, there's a lot of work being done on privacy. Um, but I think that, you know, the main ones, uh, you know, that I've seen at least uh, from, from my analysis, when I started looking into it years ago till, till now, the big kind of fuds or the big criticisms were, 
you know, that it's that it's like as Pablo covered, that it's not Bitcoin or that it's centralized. And then as you go downstream from there, you get into the other ones. Um, and I think that, you know, over time, it, it's it's something that is continually underestimated because it is it is still an active area of development, uh, both from the the you know the the developers doing the actual implementations as well as the developers doing the more consumer oriented. Uh, you know, the, the wallets, the apps, uh, liquidity providers. Uh, and I think it's something that it, it's, it's the critical mass makes it so that it's far more interesting now, in my opinion, than it was, say, three years ago. Pablo, can you expand on privacy, lightning and privacy? This was definitely a major selling point, you could call it, of lightning in the early days, um, the way payments are routed, it's supposed to be more private, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit more about how Lightning does improve privacy and, and it's all, also its limitations? Yeah, so there, there are many aspects to that. Um, the, the first aspect is that when you transact on the base layer on, on the Bitcoin blockchain, um, what you're doing is recorded for posterity. It's, you send the transaction, the moment it's confirmed, uh, it, it's there. Even if there is no information that you leaked uh, known at that point, it can be looked back. Whereas um, Lightning, it's, if you are not know that it's recording, if it's not surveilling uh, at this moment, what happened? You cannot go back and see what where did this payment go or what happened here. Um, the, the way Lightning routes, uh, it's it's very interesting. So if you have multiple nodes uh, that, so say A wants to pay to node C and it's going through node B, uh, node B doesn't know if node A is the payer or if, the, if A is just routing for someone else. So basically it's like an onion and you are putting instructions of where the rest of the onion needs to go to, but the node that is getting the onion is not able to read what's in, inside the onion. Um, the, I, I think privacy on Lightning has been oversold uh, for sure, but there are, like Lean said, there are many, many, many proposals that will improve uh, privacy on Lightning. Um, I think it, it, will, it will get to a point um, where privacy by default is going to work um, at Lightning layer. Um, I think privacy by default on uh, at the app level on Bitcoin on the base layer on layer one uh, is also going to become much more common uh, with multiple apps um, doing coin joining um, without the user even knowing. So I think in those two fronts. Um, the privacy is privacy is an issue that in, in, in Bitcoin hasn't been the priority uh, ever. Um, and I think it's becoming more and more clear that to defend the, the network and to defend the idea of 21 million, uh, fungibility needs to be prioritized. Um, and I think developers are doing that. Uh, protocol developers and app developers are, are doing that. So it's a work in progress. But um, I, I think Vault 12, for example, which is the, the next um, iteration on how payments work, uh, will work, or, or work. Um, Vault 12 has 
a bunch of really cool um, privacy features. Um, and there are many, many, many um, improvements that, that will be coming in the next few years. That's good to hear. Lynn, I want to talk about Bitcoin fees. If a lot of transactions are being moved over to the Lightning Network, and that's increasingly the case, it will certainly affect fees on the base layer. Do you have uh, concerns about Bitcoin security because the Lightning is taking away uh, transaction fees from the base layer? Uh, the short answer is no. And, and it's actually funny that I think it was the Cleveland Fed. Uh, they actually wrote a paper not that long ago uh, analyzing that very question, which is not something you normally expect out of the Fed. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, for that matter, the ECB wrote a paper about Bitcoin and Lightning being useful as a, as a you know, a, a international settlement network. And they actually, that was actually a better paper. Um, but the, the Fed one focused on Bitcoin and Lightning, but um, you know, they made, uh, I was actually talking to Elizabeth Stark about it, and they, they made multiple errors, including kind of using too early of a sample period back when Lightning was, was you know, utterly tiny uh, and it had very little impact. Um, there's been a number of things uh, in the past few years that have kind of helped uh, optimize Bitcoin fees, including greater usage of, of SegWit and, and better batching and things like that. Um, you know, I think that the biggest question for long-term Bitcoin fees is adoption. Right. So if Bitcoin stay, if the number of users stay roughly where they are now, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much of a fee market. Whereas if, if adoption goes up 5x or 10x, um, I think you're, you know, it's, it's going to be hard not to get a substantial fee market because of how tight block space is uh, and how desirable it is to be on the main chain. Um, and I think that while Lightning makes fees more efficient, it also makes the network better and more usable and allows for that batching. And so, you know, for example, every individual lighting payment, uh, you know, might have this little tiny, almost insignificant fee on it. Um, but if you're doing billions of those at some point in the distant future, uh, you know, per year, uh, that actually adds a lot to the, 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 you know, the base layer fee. Uh, and so people are being able to, able to transact with a, you know, relatively low cost. Uh, but then in aggregate, um, they're, they're, you know, they're doing a lot of security, uh, that helps miners kind of keep the network at the base layer censorship resistant. Um, and so I think, you know, the most of the FUD around long-term security really just comes down to one question. Does, does it continue to adopt uh, or not? Uh, because everything else that, that can make fees more efficient is still no direct trade-off compared to owning, you know, Bitcoin on the base layer uh, and then occasionally transacting with that when you need to. Um, and you know, I did an analysis a while back on my Bitcoin energy piece where I was, you know, comparing fees to market cap, comparing fees to volumes, because uh, volumes are actually pretty huge on the base layer. And I was, I was, you know, my, when I was doing the lighting piece, and I was looking at Fedwire numbers. Uh, Fedwire numbers are absolutely enormous. They're almost inconceivably large because they're gross numbers. Um, and so they actually weigh higher than GDP. And, uh, you know, if Bitcoin continues to be successful, uh, I could see it settling as much value as Fedwire. But I mean, even even if it settles a tenth as much as Fedwire or a quarter as much as Fedwire uh, as a global decentralized network, uh, that should result in substantial fees over time. Um, I think one thing we've generally seen is that you know over time, Bitcoin, because of these soft forks and 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 people figuring out how to use it better, has gotten more efficient. 
Uh, whereas you look at, you know, Ethereum and some of these other chains, they've kind of, in some ways, deliberately made them less efficient in order to kind of, you know, create more of a fee market, try to burn more coins, things like that. Whereas pretty much every update to Bitcoin makes it more and more efficient over time, which I think is really important considering how tight block space is. Um, if the bulls are correct, and I, I would in include myself as a bull uh, regarding, you know, Bitcoin's eventual user base. Pablo, I'd love to hear from you what you're most excited about uh, in terms of developments in the Lightning uh, space right now. Uh, well, with, without a doubt, what I'm the most excited about is um, a, an idea that's been percolating about using reusing state of Lightning uh, across multiple apps. So at the moment, whenever you you have... Um, say, for example, if you have three different apps, um, say a Fontan app for podcasting, and then you have Breeze uh, for your POS, uh, and um, I don't know, um, Wallet of Satoshi or Moon or something like that. Um, right now, each one of them is, needs to keep its own, um, its own lighting balance and its own lighting channels. Um, and there's work being done to be able to have all apps using the same channels, the same keys, um, so that you could go from one app to another app to another app. Uh, and each one of them is sharing the same. You don't have to create new channels, which means that it's much, much easier uh, and much more cost effective. And then it makes much more sense to use Lightning in a, in a, in a self-custodial way, way, where instead of you using something like Blue Wallet, where you're using someone else's channels, uh, you can use your own. Um, and this goes hand in hand with uh, the green light model and, and Sensei uh, that Jungan Trail is working on, where creating, um, running your own Lightning node becomes extremely easy um, because you can, you can basically, so for example, with Greenlight, uh, you can basically use someone else's node, in this case, Blockstream, um, but they do not have your keys. So your phone or your uh, computer has um, its own keys. And whenever there is an incoming payment or you want to pay someone, uh, you are signing the transaction with your phone or with your, with your computer. Um, but all the complexity of keeping a, a, a lightning node alive and all the complexity of managing liquidity can be pushed to an LSP. So we have, we are breaking apart the idea of a, of a, of a node into having part of it, the, the part that is much more complex that requires a bunch of infrastructure and requires understanding of how to run a node. Um, and that is very um, expensive for if you want to run the whole thing in a phone. Um, you can push all that to the cloud. And the important part, which is the keys, which is the secret, which is the state of lining channels, backups, etc., you can keep it on your phone. Um, that I'm super, super excited about that because um, up till now, the, the most logical way of creating uh, a lining app, especially for mobile, was to just use uh, custodial, just use, just use someone else's lightning nodes because doing it inside the phone was extremely hard. Uh, the user experience was horrible because if, so for example, with Breeze, if you don't open the app for a few days, 
when you want to you are at a shop and you want to pay you open the app and it needs to sync the blockchain and it takes a few minutes uh, and it's using your data and you are there at the cashier just waiting oh wait sorry i'm waiting for the blockchain um and with this new model where it's a hybrid um we can we can have a user experience that is just as good as blue wallet uh but but it's self-custodial those are the two things that i'm over the moon about that's huge lynn do you have any favorite projects you're watching so the short answer is anything that that makes it easier to use and or more private uh, and so one i'd first start by echoing what pablo said i've been following the green light uh design work uh, as best i can and that goes back to the choose your own adventure path right so that you know you can either run your own node or you can use a fully self-custodial, I mean, a fully, you know, custodial solution. You can you can fully rely on someone else. And now, you know, they're developing these tools that allow for kind of a, you know, kind of a hybrid between those two states where, you know, you're, as he described, you're offloading the complexity of running a node without offloading your keys. And I think that's a, that's a very useful development. Um, I also am optimistic about, um, like I said before, some of these things being done to make it more private. I think the, you know, the Canadian trucker, uh, donation event, I think woke a lot of people up to privacy uh, and and showed that maybe that's an area that uh, has been underinvested in, underexplored. There are really good organizations like Human Rights Foundation that have been focusing on that all along. Uh, shout out to them. Uh, but I think that the broader, you know, Bitcoin space could could you know emphasize prior, uh, privacy a little bit more. And so any any of those implementations or design uh, ideas, um, uh, I'm you know, optimistic about them making it a, a more seamlessly private experience rather than one that's kind of prone to these issues. And Lightning already stood out to some extent because, you know, during that that donation period, uh, you know, both the recipients and their donors in many cases had their, you know, their, their you know, they, they ran into problems with, with, you know, the Canadian government. Whereas if you were uh, sending via Lightning, uh, you you had some more privacy in that end, at least. And so I think that as they kind of complete the the privacy picture a little bit more on Lightning, I think that's something to be bullish about. And then lastly, Taro, um, I, I'm in the camp that's, that's that's pretty optimistic about that because we do see that, you know, in, in multiple emerging markets, there's a demand for dollars. Uh, they want something stable. Uh, someone described it to me well. Uh, he was from Argentina and he basically was like, you know, under a month, uh, local currency uh, for several months, uh, I want some stable coins. And for, for you know, multi-year long-term savings, I want Bitcoin. Um, and so right now, um, there are some uh, stable coins on, on Bitcoin, but for the most part, they're on other chains. Uh, so a lot of people use Tron, for example. And I think it'd be a much uh, better experience for people to have, you know, like a Lightning wallet. And then they have both a Bitcoin and a, and a, a dollar balance. Uh, because I think that that can increase Bitcoin adoption. Uh, it can also increase just overall usability uh, for those people. And so I, I think that for me, it really comes down to those three things, privacy, um, uh, usability, uh, and and the possible integration of, of stable coins, uh, you know, more directly. All right, we're approaching the end of this portion of the show. So if you're listening on Twitter spaces right now, Get some questions ready. We're going to come over there for a live Q&A with Pablo and Lynn. If you're watching here on YouTube, you can skip over to at uh, Swan Bitcoin on Twitter to find the space and join that for some Q&A time. So let's close out with uh, this question. What can we do, Pablo, to grow user adoption of Bitcoin as a medium of exchange 
uh, via lightning? What's do you think is one of the one of the most important things that you can think of to grow the lightning network and Bitcoin being used as a medium of exchange? That's a really good question. Um, I, I tend to think that for the most part, people adopt Bitcoin because it's um, it makes sense for them personally. Um, I, I personally don't like the idea of trying to convince um, people to to use Bitcoin or to buy Bitcoin. Um, I, I, I do see it as a, as an act of love when you when you shield, like try to orange build someone. Um, but yeah, I, I personally don't see going to shops and saying, oh, okay, do you, do you want to take Bitcoin? Do you want to take um, I just think that there is a bit of a ticking bomb on all fiat. And maybe that's just my Argentinian upbringing, but I, I just see the same, the same dynamics um, in, in the dollar, in the euro. That as I, as I saw in Argentina growing up, and for an Argentinian, you don't have to sell them on on using Bitcoin. It's just it's just so obvious. Um, like it, it's it's for me. I orange peeled my my grandfather when he was 103 years old, and it took me like two minutes. You know, just saying, well, the government can take it, and they can't print anymore. So should I install the app? It, it was like that simple. Um, so I, I think the work we need to do is just focus on UX, just focus on making it better and better and better um, and helping people understand why Bitcoin is so different, an entire different being than all the other crypto projects and why it's so different than, than CBDCs. I, I, I think that CBDCs are going to be... Uh, um, like what Trudeau did in, in Canada, it's going to be like that, but uh, at a global scale, it's just constant uh, marketing for Bitcoin. So I think we just need to build the tools and be there when when people are, are ready to, to adopt Bitcoin as a, as a savings vehicle or as a medium of exchange. Excellent. Lynn, uh, how about you? One of the most important things we can do to grow Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin Lightning Network and medium of exchange? As a use case. So I, I, I think people come to it when they need it. I think in, for many people, store value or investment, you know, they, they consider an investment. And then over time, they consider more like savings or more like a, you know, a volatile emerging store of value. Um, and, you know, depending on where they are in the world, you know, it, it, it might not be right now the, the most efficient medium of exchange. There's no reason to force it uh, when it's just not needed. Uh, whereas, you know, in, in a lot of countries, um, you know, it, it's actually a, a much better solution than what they have. Um, and especially as the, as the user experience gets better, um, I, I think it's there. And so I think this, you know, the developers, that's the most important thing is just continue to make it um, better and more usable. And then number two, uh, for, for the education to be aware, to make sure that people are at least, you know, aware that the tools are, are out there. And so that could be people writing or doing podcasts and things like that, um, or just, you know, being willing to, you know, in a non non-pushy way, just kind of, you know, be willing to, to help people that want to learn or offer to teach them and things like that. Um, and so I think it's the important thing is is not to force it where it doesn't need to be and just let, let it happen organically um, by making sure it's the right tool uh, when it's needed. Love it. All right. Thanks so much. We'll meet you over on Spaces as I close up the show. See you over there in a couple of minutes. Get your questions ready. 
over in spaces. If you're on YouTube, head over there right now at Swan Bitcoin on Twitter. All right. Fantastic show. Amazing conversation about lightning. I learned a lot. Uh, remember, Swan, uh, sorry, PacificBitcoin.com, PacificBitcoin.com to join us for the first ever Pacific Bitcoin conference in LA, specifically Santa Monica, right on the beach. It's going to be beautiful. Join us for amazing networking. Come and meet your friends that you've made on Bitcoin Twitter. Come hang out with us. Lots of parties, beach time, surfing, etc., happening around the conference. So it's going to be a fantastic time, 1,500, 2,000 people, lots of energy, but still intimate enough to make sure you get around and uh, meet those people you want to. Lots of opportunities to meet the speakers on the stage. They'll be uh, around uh, on the conference venue as well, so you'll get a chance uh, to meet them if you'd like. Go to pacificbitcoin.com and use code Brady, B-R-A-D-Y, to get a discount. And finally, hard money. Uh, if you enjoy Swan Signal, I think you'll love Hard Money. It's our weekly Bitcoin news show uh, with network broadcast quality production. We work really hard on this every week. We've got a team of five people who put in a lot of time writing the show, putting together the production itself, uh, the packages, which are an amazing part of the show, uh, which kind of highly produced, think like 60 minute style uh, packages that are a part of every episode as well, have been really moving uh, and fun to watch. I love seeing this level of uh, content production uh, for Bitcoin. I'll give you a quick view, uh, look into the hard money show, uh, and then we'll end the YouTube portion and head over to Spaces. Hello and welcome to Hard Money. I'm Natalie Brunel. Bitcoin remains in the high Hope House here in El Zante. It is a community center that does outreach at Bitcoin Beach. Look, the people got their own Bitcoin mobile. I want to start a Bitcoin caucus with other elected officials across the political spectrum. It turns everything brighter. Magic money, baby. Goldman Sachs has offered its first Bitcoin-backed loan for cash. Everybody knows the word Bitcoin. The Bitcoin. Oh, Bitcoin. 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 Economic freedom with Bitcoin. On Hard Money, we'll bring you the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. I'm Natalie Brunel. Welcome to Hard All right. Thanks for being here, everyone. Appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to Swan Signal Live with Lynn and Pablo. And I love this section of the show that we've added, uh, you know, a few months ago. It's been really popular, a chance for you all to ask questions of Lynn and Pablo. Do not be shy. No dumb questions. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll take the basic questions as well. It'll help other people here on the space learn about what's going on. So any question is welcome. And uh, let's see, we'll get started by bringing up Sonar G. There we go. Do we have you, Sonar? Sonar G? You're muted right now, so you have to unmute. Okay. We'll see if Sonar can come up later. Uh, who else has a question? Make a request right now. You'll get right on stage to ask your question. If you'd like to ask questions about macro issues, because Lynn is here, that's fine too, even though this was a, a lightning episode. Happy to entertain any questions on macro as well. All right. 
Got a couple people taking up the offer here. All right. Let's start with you, Alpha. You're the first one up here. Then we'll go to Psyduck and then Brandon. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. I always appreciate any kind of time. Um, just quick question. Why is it that during QE, uh, like the private sector tends to raise bond yields, but during QT, like the same thing happens. It's like, oh, the Fed is selling treasuries, so bond yields are going to rise. It seems like the bond yields really only go down when there are liquidation or risk off events. But QE, QT, I still see like when after the March lows happen, bond yields sort of peaked. I mean, uh, uh, troughed. Yeah, it's a good question. Basically, QE has the rather unintuitive outcome where, you know, if people just heard about it, right, so the Fed's buying bonds, they would assume that bond prices would go up, uh, which means yields going down. But in practice, the relationship is a lot more complex because often um, when the Fed starts buying bonds, um, exactly as you alluded to, the private sector starts selling bonds and then buying risk assets. Um, and so in, in practice, QE is more of a, a risk on and, and, and a tool to add liquidity rather than specifically to suppress bond yields in the near term. Uh, now, in the longer term, it, what it does, it removes so much uh, collateral from the market uh, that it helps keep yields low because all these entities uh, have more demand for collateral than collateral exists. And so I would separate kind of the short-term effect on yields versus long-term effect on yields. In addition, when debt gets truly high, um, when we get actual kind of problems uh, in, the, in the bond markets of various countries, um, QE can morph into yield curve control, uh, which is where it actually does purposely suppress yields. Um, well below the inflation rate. And, and that practice goes back as far as the 1940s or before. And the most famous example right now is that that's what Japan's doing. Um, and so QB is used for different reasons in different types of, of environments. And it's not always used to suppress yields uh, in the near term. And so I, I generally just don't find it a very good variable for determining the direction um, of, of bond yields. I think there are other things you want to focus on, like liquidity, um, looking at like who's buying, you know, is the foreign sector buying or banks buying uh, and things like that. In addition, usually um, until this recent inflationary spike, usually bond yields are very correlated to economic growth or deceleration. And so if you look at the PMI cycle, the purchasing managers index is kind of a, it looks like a sine wave and it's kind of representing the ebbs and flows of growth in the, in the economy. And generally you'll see, uh, yields going up when that's going up, then yields going down when that's going down because people start piling into those risk-off assets. Uh, but we've seen a divergence this time because of how high inflation was during a declining PMI environment. Uh, and so really, the bigger factors are, is the economy accelerating or decelerating? Um, and what is inflation doing? Is inflation rising um, or is, is it cooling off? Those are the two things to really look at when it comes to bond yields. Wow, Lynn, that was amazing. Can I, I just want to end with one more question. From a long-term horizon perspective, and you take a step back and you look at the multi-decade trend of growth, are we seeing over time since the 1980s that we tend to just score lower and lower trend growth in terms of real GDP? And if that's the case, is it possible or conceivable to say that we kind of have already 
our past peak growth and we're just pulling more demand from the future to make up for the void, you know, uh, to make everybody happy. So there's a pretty strong correlation between real growth and demographics. And so, for example, back in the 1970s, American population was growing faster uh, than it is now. And we had we had much faster growth. And again, Japan is, is a, a famous example today because, you know, you have negative population growth and you've had uh, real GDP go basically nowhere for decades. And so demographics have historically been one of the key things. There's also, of course, other factors like how indebted is the private sector, um, how effective are some of the taxation and spending policies? Is it, is it kind of a, you know, is it, is it well tailored for growth or is it, is it more inefficient and oppressive? Um, uh, you know, generally, uh, freer countries tend to, tend to grow faster. Younger countries with better demographics tend to grow faster. Um, and if you look at the United States specifically, um, our, you know, the peak of the United States was arguably around the year 2000. Um, and that was uh, basically the, the, the peak demographics. And so, for example, that was when baby boomers were at the height of their earning years. Um, and, you would, and you saw, for example, um, labor force participation. Uh, that was our high watermark ever. So the, the percentage of, of people that were actually in the workforce and working. Um, and then over time, as baby boomers started retiring, um, and as we saw some other changes um, around employment structures, uh, we've been in kind of a downward uh, arc ever since. Uh, and then you add things like, you know, the, the wars and the debt um, and, you know, the Jesnate crisis and kind of piled on like issue after issue and debt after debt. And so, yeah, generally we've been in a declining, uh, you know, growth environment, especially since the year uh, 2000. And that's, you know, there's a lot of other countries that are kind of following a similar pattern. Um, but that was kind of our, you know, United States high watermark. Uh, but then there's other countries like, you know, India or Nigeria uh, that have much better demographics and that I think have a, a brighter future ahead, um, you know, as long as they can avoid certain tail risks, you know, geopolitical instability and things like that. Thanks, Glenn. And, you know, I, I know I said last question, but just one more, please, if you will. Uh, do you see, based on your leading indicators, excuse me, leading indicators related to housing, a.k.a. refinance and mortgage uh, uh, application data, uh, builder sentiment, home builder sentiment, et cetera, since the home, home uh, excuse me, uh, homes are tied so closely to the economy. Do you foresee in the next six to eight months what, what, what could be conceived as a risk-off event because the Fed uh, monetary policy does lag behind by another six to 18 months and they're still tightening? So that, that'd be my base case. Uh, we've already seen a lot of risk off in that. And a lot, a big chunk of it was that mortgage rates went up so far so quickly. Um, and so fewer people are buying homes. Uh, fewer people are seeing to pull equity out of their home. Uh, but then at the same time, there are a few people that want to sell their home. Because a lot of people that sell their home, you know, ideally they want to turn around and, and, and move to a home. That's, that's the, the reason why they're selling. And so with mortgage rates having gone up so significantly, We've seen a very sharp reduction uh, in activity there, uh, not really prices yet. I mean, the, some of the hottest markets obviously cooled off quite a bit, uh, but it's not like we've seen some sort of nationwide crash in, in housing prices because, you know, both buyers and sellers uh, kind of stopped showing up. Um, and so I, I, I kind of expect sort of a stagnation uh, in, in the nationwide averages uh, going forward. Um, it partially depends on how far the Fed wants to push it. Partially depends on what we see 
um, in energy-driven inflation. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm probably less bearish than the typical macro bear on, on U.S. Uh, residential real estate, even though there are, I think it's very zip code dependent. There are certain zip codes I'd be very, you know, they're, they're, the hottest markets I think are more concerned than some of the more uh, linear markets. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're the best. Thanks, Alpha. Psyduck, you're up. Thank you guys so much for letting me talk. Um, just wanted to ask, uh, I'm curious to know what you guys, how you guys think uh, Bitcoin is going to affect tax policy across the world. How do you see things changing and do you see lightning affecting any of that? I guess I can hop in. Pablo, did you want to comment on that or want me to hop in? No, go, go for it. So I, I think I think it's a good question, but I, th I still think we're ways off from that. I think Bitcoin and especially Lightning are still so tiny in the global scheme of things um, that that's going to take time to play out, especially in, deve in developed uh, markets. It, it can certainly impact some of the smaller uh, uh, countries with more troubled currencies uh, earlier. Um, but and I actually think still it's still the case that that tax is is one of the big frictions uh, I think for medium of exchange. So one of the one of the questions that came up in our earlier podcast was what would make Bitcoin catch on more as a medium of exchange? And part of it is just, you know, the need for it or the desire to use it. Uh, but I think another factor is that tax element. Um, and so I think as long as, you know, capital gain taxes are in place on it, that adds kind of an undue friction. And in small amounts, there are a lot of people that just ignore um, those little tax events. Uh, but especially for businesses or especially for people that are trying to follow the letter of the law around uh, taxes, um, that does, I think, present a friction. So I think this is going to be an ongoing uh, issue to work out in the, in, the, in the years ahead. And I think it's one of those things where as adoption grows, uh, people can vote in different politicians and then they can get kind of things passed uh, to, to maybe remove some of those frictions. Um, and then if you got long enough, I mean, that you know, th then you're in kind of a you know, it depends how far Bitcoin went. It's a very different world in terms of, of you know, tax policy. Thanks, Dan. That helped us a lot. I'm kind of curious, though. Would, would it be possible with Lightning, for example, to be able to live in one jurisdiction, say the U.S., and be taxed differently based on where your transactions are being routed or processed? It's actually a really good set of questions. I mean, different different countries have different tax policies. So one thing, you know, for American citizens um, is that no matter where you go in the world, you're still subject to U.S. taxation, whereas many countries are not like that. Um, there certainly can be different taxes, tax policies applied to different nodes depending on their jurisdiction, uh, and that could uh, become apparent in the fees that they charge. Um, but it's honestly not something I've, I've put a ton of thought into of the nuances of like very long-term oriented lightning tax policy. All right. Thanks, Psyduck. I do have a quick one that came in from, or I'm going to slide this one in. It came in from DMs, sharp on sats. Uh, Pablo, we'll give this one to you. There's a lot of hype in the market about other use cases for Lightning, voice, video, texting, etc. Uh, do you or Lynn have a comment about whether those are at all valid? 
Oh yes, I I do have a comment. They yeah, I'm I'm extremely extremely skeptical of those use cases, and I think those play to just narratives because they sound really cool. The idea of on building applications on top of Lightning, um, routing on Lightning is extremely extremely slow for anything that requires any kind of synchronicity like video or audio. Um, it doesn't make it doesn't make much sense either. Uh, there, I mean, you can have some benefits in terms of um, privacy uh, if you're using lighting for video or, or for or for audio or, or phone calls or whatever it might be. Um, but the experience would be so absolutely terrible that no one will use it, um, and you can have much better privacy without uh, incurring those those penalties um, without using Lightning. Um, the idea of using Lightning for payments, it's it's a pretty novel idea, uh, but the idea of using Lightning for, for, for payments um, um, attached to, to video or anything like that, when the video or the audio or the whatever payload um, is being transferred, happens out of band, just not on Lightning. Um, I, I think that's perfectly, perfectly valid, and that's basically what uh, podcast podcasting 2.0 is and what MASH uh, is doing and value for value and all that stuff. But the data itself, it makes zero sense to transmit the data on top of Lightning. Pablo, what about apps like Sphinx, and what Zion is trying to do, are they putting actual content into Lightning transactions? Uh, maybe you don't know, but if you do, uh, what's up with those services and how they work? Yeah, so Sphinx came up with the idea of using Onion routing as a way of transmi transmitting data. Um, and it was a novelty. It's, 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 it's a, a cool idea. It just doesn't have... Um, a real application. There's no reason or why it would make sense to put that data on 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 your routing. It, it just doesn't make sense. It's the equivalent of trying to send uh, a letter to someone by writing it on a on a dollar bill and <laughs> trying to make that dollar bill reach the destination. It just doesn't make any sense uh, other than narrative. Sion. Uh, the, the the way they approach um, the idea of the company of using um, value for value and direct monetization and having consumer and producer be much closer instead of relying on Facebook or Twitter or or any of the tech giants. Um, the idea was to use Lightning based on what Sphinx did, uh, but the new the new Scion uh, that they've been working on for for a few months, uh, they are completely scratching the idea of, of of using Lightning for these, and they are just using Lightning for payments, which is what Lightning is for. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's an idea that it's it just sounds technically cool. It doesn't have a real use case. There's no reason why you would put that data on Lightning. And Lightning can be used for, for payments related to any kind of uh, data transmission or any kind of um, any kind of exchange. Um, but yeah, no, it's just, it's just the data not on Lightning. <laughs> oh, yeah, makes sense. Um, Lynn, did you want to comment on that before we move on to Brandon? I think we're going to see the experiment happen in the field because you have uh, Keat, 
which is not doing that. So Keat is um, uh, was introduced by the team behind Bitfinex and Tether, and they basically are doing you know peer to peer video sharing, peer to peer large file transfer, uh, with plans to incorporate uh, Lightning uh, alongside it. So using Lightning for the payments uh, alongside that information value transfer, rather than embedding the information in Lightning. And then, you know, we also see things like Impervious that are um, trying to do the, the other, which is basically put information uh, onto Lightning. Um, you know, I, I remain open-minded to see um, where that's going to go. Uh, I think, you know, you would need a strong reason to want to put that in Lightning because of the inherent limitations. Um, and so I kind of think in, in the, at least in the intermediate term, um, I, I think Keat is probably going to have a better chance of of taking off a little bit, but basically it'll come down to kind of a market test and we'll see basically if there's a, if there's a fit or not. Um, and also, you know, Keat is pretty, um, you know, it's got pretty big backers behind it. So I think we'll see it play out in the field. Thank you, Brandon, you're up. Then we'll go to uh, Anibal, Anibal and Carbon uh, after that. And you're, anybody listening is more than welcome to come up and ask a question can be macro related, lightning related. Um, you could ask, uh, you know, about about Lynn and Pablo's favorite foods. <laughs> it doesn't matter. This is a great chance to come up and uh, interact with these two. So let's go, Brandon. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Brady. Uh, so my question is, uh, uh, and sorry if this was addressed earlier in the podcast, but uh, the FOMC meeting uh, meeting minutes came out. Uh, earlier today. I'm curious if, you know, it had a bit more of a hawkish tone, if that's something that uh, is revising y'all's base case for kind of how you see the, the market playing out over the next few months. And then I have a follow-up question after that, but I'll, I'll leave it there. So I only got a chance to review them briefly, um, but uh, it's, it's actually something I, it's on my to-do list to get back to later today. Um, but basically, you know, my expectation is still that the, the Fed is going to be uh, at least somewhat hawkish um, until they get a little bit further on in this tightening cycle. And the, the big rally we've just seen in risk assets, uh, you know, might have gotten a little bit ahead of itself. And so uh, I wouldn't really be surprised to see more weakness uh, in the second half this year, or at least, you know, sideways, you know, kind of choppy uh, action in a lot of risk assets. Um, and then there's still the quantitative tightening part. So, you know, everyone's focused on the what the rate is going to be, what interest rates are going to be. Um, uh, but there's also the fact that the Fed has barely started um, its, its process of at least trying to remove um, assets from its balance sheet. Um, and so I still think that there's quite a bit ahead here in terms of, of stagnation and kind of the, the, the mental model I've been using. Because um, I don't try to time tops and bottoms. I'm not like a you know, I'm like a trader watching the tape. I'm, I'm kind of more trying to find, you know, long-term uh, compounding macro ideas. Um, but so kind of the, the, the base case I'm working with is that uh, at the end of last year, at the end of 2021, uh, U.S. stock market capitalization to GDP reached about 200%, uh, at, least, at least the way I measure it. There's a couple different ways you can measure it. Um, and I think that that's a high watermark that's going to be very tough to reach. Uh, anytime soon, because that was a combination of super low interest rates, um, you know, pretty low commodity prices, um, and a surge of, of massive fiscal stimulus. Um, and so I think going forward, as that has rolled over, uh, I think that's a high watermark that's going to be tough to match for a long time. 
But that still doesn't mean that, so for example, you know, a couple of years from now or some time in the future, that doesn't mean that the S&P 500, for example, can't reach new nominal highs. Um, it just means that if that is being correct, that it's not going to reach new highs relative to GDP. So when you factor out the, you know, the inflation component, when you factor out nominal GDP growth, um, I think that level of, of euphoria or market value to the actual underlying economy. Uh, I think we've probably seen the top. Uh, at least that, that's kind of the base case, the mental model uh, that I'm working with going forward. Thank you so much. That's, that's really helpful. Uh, my, my follow-up question on this is, you know, uh, as, as a Bitcoiner who's been around for a little while, you know, it feels like maybe only in the past two years have I needed to, I don't know, pay attention or care about what Jerome Powell or, or X, you know, YZ Fed person is saying. I'm curious if this is a permanent fixture in Bitcoin as it continues to monetize or if we will you, you foresee us going back to a world where, you know, we don't have to pay attention to what the FOMC says uh, month to month and we can be a little bit more focused on just what's happening in Bitcoin itself. I think that partially comes down to individuals, right? So someone is just dollar cost averaging in, for example, and they're just hodling. Um, you know, obviously things that Jerome Powell does might affect the price, uh, but if they're not planning on selling anytime soon, uh, then they can partially ignore that, depending on how much they want to focus on macro versus their, you know, their day job. Um, and it's also why, you know, compared to other, you know, many other Bitcoiners, I tend to diversify a little bit more just to reduce the overall volatility on my net worth as we go through this, you know, monetization process that many of us expect to happen. Um, I think as long as, you know, the dollar is as large as it is, and then more importantly, it's also the asset that has most of the liabilities denominated in it. And so whenever you have like a tightening process, essentially what they're doing is they're pushing down broad asset prices relative to liabilities. Uh, and of course, they can only do that so far before they actually kind of mess the system itself. Um, but they're able to do it quite a bit and for, for quite long stretches of time. Um, and so I do think that's going to be a, a, an ongoing issue um, for as long as, you know, Bitcoin is as small as it is, uh, meaning, you know, in terms of adoption, in terms of market cap, in terms of volumes uh, and things like that, uh, compared to the size of the dollar market uh, and the amount of dollar-based debt in the system. Um, now, I think this is a particularly macro-heavy period because, you know, starting in 2020, we had like the biggest ever fiscal injection uh, into the economy since World War II, um, you know, relative to the GDP. Uh, and then now we've kind of have like a, a record withdrawal of stimulus. And so that's kind of been a, a roller coaster that is above average. Uh, so I, I don't know if we'll see something quite to that extent uh, every year. Um, but I think that as long as this relative size exists um, and as long as we're kind of in a macro heavy era, uh, I do think it's going to be kind of, unfortunately, uh, you know, that the Jerome Powell is going to be able to do things like push around the price of Bitcoin. To, to that point, and sorry, I'll, I'll see the stage after this, but, you know, is there anything that you're like looking out for in terms of saying like, all right, the macro heavy period is kind of subsided and we'd go back to more just fundamental, you know, changes or like, you know, is, is there an end game where you see Powell like not bullying the market so much? So I, I generally I, I've been describing my base case is us being in a inflationary decade, but in a, a disinflationary period within that inflationary decade. So, 
trees don't go to the sky and, you know, cycles happen. Um, and so if you look at other, you know, typically inflationary decades like the 70s or the 40s, um, that's some pretty disinflationary periods, disinflationary uh, cycles within those inflationary decades. And so I think that's what we're seeing now, we're seeing the brakes being put on as much as possible in, in multiple countries. Um, I think kind of the next regime change is when the, the Fed is eventually unable to keep tightening, uh, even though supply side inflation is still kind of a recurring theme. I think until they prove the energy supply side globally, um, I think it's going to be something that keeps coming back, even if we can kind of, you know, put it behind us for periods of time. And so I think that this is going to be basically a, a decade of kind of navigating these inflation cycles. Uh, and the extent that someone actually wants to follow that versus just kind of stick to a long-term plan. Makes sense. Thanks so much, Lynn. Thanks, Brady. Thanks, Brandon. And thanks for your work on Bitcoin Magazine and all your writing and leadership over there. Uh, if you don't have one of these Bitcoin magazines, uh, physical copies, they're absolutely incredible. Great collector's items and the writing is great. They're beautiful. So check those out on Bitcoin Magazine's website. All right, let's go to Anibal. Oh, hey, guys. Hi from El Salvador. Uh, great to hear you all. Um, so recently, there's been a lot of buzz about the Liquid Network down here. I wanted to get your impressions on this sidechain. Uh, does it make for a healthier ecosystem or could Lightning and Liquid be competing for the same audience? And uh, also, uh, I'm just going to a quick plug here. We're going to have our adopting Bitcoin uh, second year in the row here in El Salvador. You're all invited. It would be amazing to see you guys here. Lynn, you're invited. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll let Pablo take the first uh, answer, though. Yeah, I think um, uh, um, I'm, I'm planning on, on, on going to, to the conference, uh, so uh, I'll be seeing you there. <laughs> um, yeah, with regards to with regards to Liquid, um, yeah, I think Liquid has some has some interesting uh, trade offs. Um, it's it, it issues effectively. It issues a token that it's uh pegged to to bitcoin um and in, in that sense it, it's not um because it, lvtc is not actually btc right um so it in, in a sense it's, it's interesting because it, it unlocks a bunch of functionality that that is not possible on on the bitcoin blockchain um like confidential transactions um so I, I think there is uh, there is validity to the to the use of of liquid. Um, I'm extremely extremely skeptical of, of of using other blockchains. But when the idea of that that the base asset is not um, an asset that is for speculation, doesn't have its own price, which to me, in a sense, it's the um, it's one of the um, reasons why uh, a blockchain like like Stacks that is sort of built a little bit with the idea of, of um, portraying itself as having the same kind of trade-offs as, as Liquid, but the fact that the base token uh, trades against Bitcoin and there is no peg-in and peg-out um, means that it has completely different different dynamics. The fact that LBTC uh, is always redeemable for, for the Bitcoin um Makes it makes it interesting. It, it's there is some there is a concept of, of drive chains where um, there there was a proposal back in the day to 
be able to issue tokens um, based on on Bitcoin, where you could peg in and and, and peg out. And because of the peg out uh, capability, you you get stability in, in the price because the token uh, there is no reason why the token would have a different price than the than than Bitcoin. Uh, and the, the, those ideas of having separate blockchains that provide different functionalities uh, to me it's 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 interesting um yeah i i think liquid i i've never i i mean i've used liquid for just for playing around and testing but i've never had a, a use case for for the um, for actually using it um so yeah I, I i'm not sure if you have uh anything in particular that is being um that is being proposed uh down in el salvador um but yeah, I, I definitely don't um, don't discard it as a as a valid um, tool. I've I've been keeping an eye on it to some extent. Uh, one one thing we can so one per, one thing he asked was if it competes with Lightning, and I would say for the most part not. And, and so, for example, Blockstream does both; they do both Liquid and they do a Lightning implementation. Um, and you know, Liquid's useful in the sense that you get faster block times, um, you get a little bit more privacy, uh, and then you can do things a little bit more expressive uh, with your Bitcoin. Um, and so you, you take on additional risk, an additional layer, basically a, a multi-signature federation risk on top of your Bitcoin. Um, and so in some sense, it's like a, it's a Bitcoin IOU, but it's, it's more decentralized than a single entity uh, giving you the IOU. Um, and so there are some people that, that do like NFTs on Bitcoin, and so that's one of the that they can explore. Um, you can also uh, issue securities. Uh, I think my understanding is that um, El Salvador's bonds were planning on being issued on liquid, um, but it's not something I've followed super closely in recent months. Uh, and so I, I, I remain very open-minded to it, especially because right now and in most of recent history, we've been in a very low fee environment. Um, whereas if we, if we hit a period of structurally higher base layer fees, um, I think we could potentially see, or at least I'd be open-minded to seeing, um, you know, kind of the re-exploration or re-emergence of, of side chains as a, as a more used concept on Bitcoin. Because there might be people, for example, that want to hold Bitcoin, uh, but they're maybe priced out of the base layer. Um, and, and, you know, they want to hold it longer than, than, you know, they might otherwise do on, on Lightning, right? So they might want to hold you know, like a harder wallet with with liquid BTC in it or something. Um, and so I think that I think what platforms are useful people can change over time as the as Bitcoin uh, adoption and the network itself changes over time. So I'm always open to kind of exploration, uh, like like what they're doing over at Blockstream. All right, thanks for the question. Shout out. To uh, to your country, to El Salvador, kind of leading the way on Bitcoin adoption. Pretty exciting. Carbon, you're up next. Yes. Hello. Um, first of all, I'm I'm a bit starstruck to uh, be up here on stage with you, Lynn, and I'm humbled that I get to ask you a question. I do appreciate your time, and I've been following you a while. Um, so since um, Brady opened the floor up to some fun questions, I'd like to ask one, and then maybe. Hopefully I can um, articulate a bit more intellectual question next. So um, have you bought any NFTs, art NFTs, or anything you would share with us? Uh, so I personally have not. Um, they're, 
I find that it's it's interesting how there's these communities developing around NFTs, um, right? So they like they buy into a community that they they kind of represents like like their personality, and then they you can kind of see different personalities in these different little NFT communities. Um, you know, it's unfortunate because it's all it's like it's 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 a super super speculative. You know, mostly people are going to lose money. There's like a lot of scams going on about how like you can use them for washing out capital gains. You can you can kind of move them around wallet to wallet to pump up the price. Um, it's, it's a space that I pay attention to, even though I've not really um, had a desire to buy any myself. And and I appreciate you saying that because I was um, I was going to ask actually if you felt it was somewhat of a distraction um, and not really a use case. Um, I know that I've definitely spent probably more time paying attention to them in the last couple of months than listening to folks like you. Um, so, yeah, I was going to ask that and you sort of answered it. Um, the, the, I guess the next question, hopefully I can articulate this well. Um, what would you say are the next one or two indicators of, of mass adoption of Bitcoin um, that, that we would be able to see, I guess, as layman? Um, and, and does the Lightning Network help that along or has, has that changed with the Lightning Network of what the next one or two indicators would be of, of mass adoption? So personally, I mean, I watch numbers to the extent that they're that they're publicly available. So when it comes to lightning, I watch things uh, total capacity that's public. Um, that that has been a very constructive chart. If you ever look at it, it, it had this huge uptick uh, in twenty twenty one, and then it cooled off a little. Bit, but then it's been continuing to go very quickly. Um, I also look at you know a number of nodes, number of channels, other ways of measuring the size of the lightning network. Um, you can also look, look up things like average channel size. Um, I just look for just in general that things are even in a volatile way that they're that they're generally growing over time, and then for the Bitcoin base layer itself, I mean obviously price and market capitalization are important over the long term. Uh, I also look at uh, some some really basic on chain stuff. I mean I don't like the the kind of the industry of overselling what on chain analysis can tell you about intermediate term price moves but i do kind of monitor a couple of those for just situational awareness just to see what's happening on chain uh you know kind of roughly speaking so i generally look at you know how many addresses have have you know between 0.1 and one bitcoin and of course those don't necessarily come to individuals um because someone can have multiple uh you know different addresses of course um but i generally just watch a number of these these to the extent that we can quantify it, uh, I watch it um, just to see that it's gaining adoption structurally. Um, sometimes you can collaborate those because, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, the, the companies behind the hardware wallets, you know, will say that they've had a very strong period of sales or a period of weaker sales, um, things like that. Um, and then also I'm, I watch some of the deals in the venture space uh, to see that, you know, Bitcoin for focused companies are continuing to do larger and larger, uh, you know, series A, series B rounds uh, to keep raising capital. Uh, and that's that's a sign that their business is doing well, that they're attracting ongoing uh, interest from VCs. And of course, it's much smaller than the broad crypto space, uh, but it is going up and to the right. So that's another thing that I watch pretty closely. Okay, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming up, Carbon. Appreciate you. Let's go with Nikolai next and then Jordan. If anybody wants to hop up, now's your time. Uh, hi, uh, everyone. Hi, Lynn. Uh, I
echo the uh, you know, admiration comments. Uh, really enjoy your work. Um, God, there's there's a lot of things I'd I'd like to ask, but just let me just tick off a couple. One is um, in the wake of the uh, tornado cash event, uh, has there been a uh, a large shift in the regulatory environment or the the, the uh, regulatory threat coming out of the um, uh, the U.S. and Remember, we've got this sort of looming rep uh, report from the Biden administration on their task force. Um, and then um, the second thing I wanted to ask was to sort of uh, dive back into the last question. Uh, we, we seem to be, as you pointed out, sort of a, you know, captive to uh, the, the, you know, just we're just sort of another risk on asset. And we and we all know that the fundamental attributes of Bitcoin are risk off as a, you know, uh, finite bearer instrument. Um, but is there a, a point along the adoption curve when we go from 100 or 200 million addresses to a billion where that, um, where, where demand and adoption swamp um, that, you know, it being treated like just another tech stock? Uh, and I'll, I'll stop there and uh, maybe let you address either one of those. Uh, so I've been watching the regulation front pretty closely, and I'm also I've been talking to um, some of my contacts in the mining space, uh, uh, you know, around concerns around, you know, the, the possibility of, uh, you know, censoring transactions at the pool or the mining level. Um, I think the risk is much less uh, significant than it is for uh, that's something I've been kind of vocal about lately, uh, but it is something we still want to monitor from the proof of work side as well. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, a lot of the concerns over the years around Bitcoin from from people that were skeptical of it, one of the ones is that the government will ban it. And I think that's, you know, increasingly unlikely, but I do think that there could be steps up on attacks on privacy, uh, uh, attacks on self-custody. Uh, we've kind of seen those uh, kind of bubble up to the surface in various ways. Tornado Cash, obviously, being a really big shot across the bat. Um, and then we've also seen, you know, just discussions in Europe around, quote-unquote, self-hosted wallets. Um, so it's, you know, as, as Gigi pointed out, it's, it's kind of a language game. Um, so I, I, I do think it's important to monitor um, different regulatory approaches, uh, especially as it relates to privacy. Uh, and privacy continues to be one of the things I... I focus on um, and, you know, both donate to and am interested in investing in uh, to make Bitcoin as a whole as fungible uh, and private as possible uh, in a way that doesn't really rely on centralized, sanctionable entities. Uh, so I think that's, that's an ongoing, you know, it, I, it, you can call it a weakness. It's an ongoing weakness of Bitcoin that I, I think still has work to do uh, to make it as strong as it can be uh, on that front. Um, and I, I think I forgot the second part of the question. Oh, the second part of the question is about the basically the adoption uh, and the volatility and the risk off. So generally, I think that, you know, anything with upward volatility is going to attract speculation and leverage. And so it's prone to periods of downside volatility. Uh, and my base case is that as it gets more widely held and more liquid, um, you know, the, the ability for individual entities to move it diminishes, right? So you know, the, the ability of, of Luna or Three Arrows Capital uh, to move it 
um, is still pretty significant in this kind of recent environment. Whereas if Bitcoin was five times or 10 times bigger, um, you know, it would be much harder for entities of that size, uh, you know, kind of degen traders uh, to move it. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's the general direction uh, that it's headed in. Uh, but I still think it's going to have probably multiple volatile cycles ahead of it. Um, and it's obviously one of the most vulnerable periods it has is either in, in broad risk-off environments or when the Fed is specifically trying to tighten uh, dollar monetary policy. Because as I pointed out before, most liabilities, like the majority of liabilities, are denominated uh, you know, in dollars, especially you know, throughout the Western world. And so basically whenever they're doing that, they're hardening liabilities relative. And so smaller and less liquid assets uh, are going to be the ones that kind of get thrown under the bus first. Yeah. And, and in terms of uh, tightening cycles, um, I, I have difficulty um, take, taking them seriously. I mean, obviously they are serious. Obviously they can tank markets. And, uh, but I view them as, you know, like a, a you know, six month to a 24 month sort of, uh, you know, volatility vector against the backdrop of like, uh, you know, I think Greg Foss calls it the inevitability of, you know, um, I forget how Foss says it, but he's talking about how it's, you know, we, they, ha it's, they have to print ad infinitum. They have to print forever. Um, so I, it's, it's sort of like, um, and forgive the cliche, but it's kind of like clown world when, you know, Jerome Powell gets up there and says, hey, we're going we're gonna to tighten and we're going to raise rates. But they really can't do that for a sustained period of time because they'll, they'll tank um, they'll tank their own game, you know, um, their, their revenue will fall, state and local governments will f lose revenue, uh, they can't afford the coupon payment on their own debt, uh, asset prices will collapse, banks will fail. So it's, it sort of seems like this sort of like posturing game they play, um, but there's an inevitability to them having to print. Do you agree with that? Yes, but subject to timelines. I mean, you know, from, from 2015 to late 2019, they're able to, to tighten in various ways in terms of balance sheet uh, and interest rates for, for varying parts of that length. Uh, and so, I, you know, the, the cycles and lengths will vary. The way that I generally describe it is that I think that, you know, the United States with 370% debt to GDP, public and private, um, it, it's, it's impossible to structurally normalize positive real rates. That doesn't mean they can't get to positive real rates for short periods of time. That, that doesn't mean they can't tighten for, as you point out, six to you know, 24 months. Um, you know, there's certainly tightening uh, things they can do, uh, whereas the thing that I kind of you know, call the bluff on is for any of the developed world central banks to be able to get back, get back to a regime of structurally positive real rates because that becomes unsustainable uh, for the economy with this amount of leverage in the system. And that's kind of the... the corner they back themselves into uh but it is a process uh that can take quite a long time to play out with, with periods of fighting that pretty hard in there yeah well uh, uh thank you very much for your answers and thank you for your question questions let's go with jordan next and then banana bread ski uh, thank you very much for the time. So I got two questions. I got a Bitcoin question and then a macro question. So it seems like um, the CBDCs are just inevitable, at least in my opinion. It seems like they're coming. They may not come to every country, but it seems like they're on their way. I'm wondering if 
and this is just more of an opinion, but I wonder if the introduction of CBDCs is going to help drive the Bitcoin adoption and what you thought about that just in a general sense for, for anyone who wants to answer. Um, and then I can ask my macro question after that. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that one because I have um, I have strong feelings <laughs> about, about that question. I also thought about that question um, about the idea of what would happen with CBDCs. And I absolutely agree that CBDCs will um, completely um, increase the adoption of, of Bitcoin. Um, my, my experience... My my base case is that CBDCs will make uh, censorship at the state level extremely, extremely simple. Um, I think that CBDCs will end up making the price of Bitcoin um, not to go up or down, but to simply stop to exist on on official markets. Um, because CBDCs will create the technical capability for the state to uh, prohibit, perfectly prohibit, the trading of Bitcoin. If each single CBDC transaction requires approval from, from the state, um, they could perfectly ban peer-to-peer um, -peer transactions. So even using BISC or using RoboSats or anything like that could be stopped by the state. Um, and in, in, in my, from my point of view, the moment that something like that happens or something like that could happen, um, people um, will, will find a way to, to run around that. But in, in my experience in, in Argentina, the state has been, the Argentinian state has been uh, clamping on, on people trying to escape the peso and buying dollars. And for about 10 years, uh, a, bit, a bit over 10 years, they started creating more and more barriers for, for people to buy dollars. Um, if the Argentinian state had a magic button they can press, which completely prevents, perfectly prevents people from buying dollars, they will press it in a matter of seconds. They will not hesitate. Um, and the moment you have censorship, uh, in, in that way, the moment they are trying to prevent people from, from escaping, uh, people will seek the escape. And actually, every time the Argentinian government has gone harder and harder to stop people from buying dollars, um, more and more um, dark markets emerge where you can go and buy physical dollars. Um, so for, for me, CBDCs are an inevit inevitability. Uh, and CBDCs ad uh, accelerating Bitcoin adoption is also an inevitability. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, I think the temptation for the the amount of control that CBDCs would give is a little too much for for states and governments to to pass on. Um, sadly, but it just just seems like we're kind of going that direction. Uh, so my macro question is, I've recently allocated to short-term bonds in my portfolio because I feel like we're kind of up against a wall for the, the rate hikes. Not to say that we're not going to have any more rate hikes, because I agree with Lynn. I think the Fed is still very hawkish at this point. But I'm wondering, what is the, and this is, this is me being a novice and 
obviously not a professional opinion or a question really. What's going to be the effect of tightening? Because for the majority of my adult life, I've lived in quantitative easing. So what's the effect of tightening on something like bonds? I, I've just never seen it. And, and honestly, I'm, I just don't know anything about it. Well, so for example, back in uh, 2017, they were tightening. Uh, and the funny thing is, it, it really it, tightening is not even often the, the single biggest variable uh, that matters here. Because for example, back in 2017, they were tightening. That was during a risk on period. Basically, uh, the economy was accelerating. Uh, I talked before about PMI cycles, so you know the kind of the sine wave of of growth and and deceleration. And so, normally, what happens is it tightens while things are running hot. And so, you know, it, it, it's somewhat counterintuitively, you generally have risk assets going up, um, and and bond prices going down, meaning that yields are going up. For example, the the epic uh, twenty seventeen. Uh, Bitcoin uh, bull run happened while the Fed was hiking rates the whole time. Um, and what makes this one a little bit different is that the Fed is tightening while the economy is already slowed down. Basically, they started too late, uh, and then due to how high inflation is, they tightened and missed their timing window uh, more smoothly. Um, and so I think the, the, the bigger part of what's going on here is the economic deceleration. Uh, more so than just the tightening, because it'd be a very different environment if they were doing this tightening, you know, a year earlier while you had that kind of booming stimulus uh, playing out. Um, and so it really kind of depends on the specific conditions. Um, so generally speaking, like if you look at the, at the last tightening cycle, bond yields were going up during tightening. And then when growth, growth it was still tightening for a period of time, but you started to see bond yields kind of begin pricing in that they were Fed's bluff, uh, and that they're going to have trouble tightening, and that's that's eventually what happened. And I think we're seeing very early signs of that now. Basically, the market is starting to price in its its forward top in in Fed tightening, even though they're not there yet. Um, and that that's still subject to incoming data. So you know they get they got a really good retail sales number, at least nominally, and so basically the market kind of you know gets a little bit more hawkish. Um, the data point, and so it gets a little bit more dovish. And but it's the the momentum is clearly pointing towards, you know, probably by early next year, the the Fed will have uh, finished tightening, um, probably something over three percent. Um, but then we'll see they they still could be doing quantitative tightening at that point because there's a lot of money in the in the reverse repos uh, that they, they can kind of extract and kind of counteract some of their liquidity withdrawals. And so, in general. Um, it, it, it's kind of really kind of economic cycles. So actually, I would advise people to look up the um, ISM Purchasing Managers Index. Um, I, I think there's, if there's one chart that you want to have an idea of what's going on in macro, uh, that's probably the one to look at. Kat. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Banana bread ski. And I think, yeah, this is going to be the last one. Ooh, I just had a quick um thank you guys, Swan. You guys are dope. And I appreciate you guys putting on the space so people can figure shit out. And um I was hanging out in uh and uh Lord F was talking about what he's doing in his country and Lynn was just talking about adoption and blockstream. And uh after they had I can't remember what the fuck kind of earmuffs children, um, 
some kind of natural disaster where basically their, their, their country did lose power and Blockstream satellites and Blockstream kept the Bitcoin flowing for him. And uh, he's on that level. You know, we're talking about adoption. They're, his island is going to be Bitcoin island. He's like, me and the homies run this shit. Wow, earmuffs. And we're going to pass it through and we're going to pass it through. And that will be our legal tender. So how can we go wrong if we're going to own on layer one Bitcoin something that another country's legal tender? I mean, that's just the way I was thinking. And I just want to thank you guys for, you know, throwing the space. That's all. This made me think of that. I was moving the table and uh, I was thinking of all that stuff. And Lynn, nice answers. You're very articulate, very professional. Appreciate you guys. We are Satoshi. Let's go. I appreciate Let's that. go. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the the strength of the community and the conviction a lot of places have, especially in these 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 kind of strong pockets of of adoption, uh, I think is is one of the most bullish things. And I'm always more interested in uh, adoption, at, you know, outside of the Western world and in a lot of these countries that that can you know that can make better usage of it uh, in many ways and, and, and realize more quickly that they need it. Um, you know, I, to play devil's advocate, I mean, just because a, a small country uses legal tender doesn't, doesn't guarantee its success, but obviously those, those types of things stack up over time and so each kind of, you know, rite of passage that it goes through um, becomes another notch in, it, in its belt in terms of, of judging its kind of long-term success. And so I think it's still it's it's in a very healthy uh, adoption curve, um, and it's volatile. But I think that the signs continue to point very bullish, uh, and and the example you gave is a great example of that. And and so I also think that you know, for example, Blockstream satellites show, you know, how much the Bitcoin community focuses on things like security and and kind of long term. You know, number go up in the near term. It's not about you know just gambling on top of Bitcoin. It's about ways to you know make the network itself more resilient, more resilient, and to increase you know the the percentage of people that can they can access the network. Heck yeah! And then that reminded me. Um, the other thing he said is that they were going to use their volcanoes to mine, and he had five volcanoes, and their estimate is that they'll get not. I think it was ninety five kilowatts. It was like it was like go to eighty eight miles with the flux capacitor. But basically, he's he's just he's going he's going all in, and he's like Bitcoin saved us now. And like there was people in his face that asked him questions. And I'm like, you guys, the people in his country don't even have electricity yet. Like, but but Blockstream put him back on, and he's now he's back online and doing stuff. So uh, that's all. Appreciate you guys. Yeah, it's a cool story. Like 95, 95 megawatts per volcano, and he's got five, five volcanoes that he's gonna mine with. And then he said he wants to put like a black box in every family's yard. So that's we really need cool. to, we need to get it before. Lord F takes all the Bitcoin. No, it's still TikTok next block. So we got, <laughs> we got just good, just hey, Lord F, Lord F may be a Pacific Bitcoin uh, mm. in November. Uh, you know, he his uh, his country is in the Pacific Island. So uh, it just makes yeah, sense yeah. to get him up there, working on it now. Um, that's going to be it for today. Uh, I know awesome, guys. Lynn's got to get to work, get back to work. He's, she's got uh, a hard stop at three o'clock. So Big thank you to Lynn and to Pablo for donating their time today so that we could get their takes and learn more about Lightning Network and the macro environment. It's been a really fun couple of hours. Uh, thanks, Lynn. Appreciate you. Thanks for hosting and thanks, Pablo. And thanks, Trevin, for joining in. Uh, this was a lot of fun.
All right, Pablo, thanks, man. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Brady. Thanks, Lean. Yeah, this was uh, this was a lot of fun. Um, and run, run Bitcoin. It's fun to use the software. That's right. Exactly. Run a node. Uh, it's not it's not so hard. It's not so hard. There's plenty of uh, support out there for for you uh, on your journey to becoming uh, a self sovereign Bitcoiner, which means running your own node and running your transactions through your node, uh, so you can verify uh, individually. What's going on with your money and your transactions is pretty cool. All right. Uh, thanks, everyone. Check out Pacific Bitcoin, which is the uh, event, the conference that Swan is throwing November 10th and 11th in Santa Monica, California. Go to PacificBitcoin.com. Use code Brady. That's B-R-A-D-Y, my first name, to get a discount on those tickets. It's going to be absolutely worth it. Uh, we are going to have an incredible time. So check that out. Uh, and again, uh, swansignalpodcast.com. You can uh, sub there or just search Swan Signal in your podcast app uh, to check that out. And, uh, you know, use use one of your the value for value uh, apps like Fountain, for instance, uh, to listen to your podcast and stream sats or at least just check it out because it's really cool. All right. Thanks, everyone. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks for the next episode of Swan Signal Live. Thanks to Lynn and Pablo for joining us. On behalf of the SWAN team, thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the SWAN Signal Podcast. It's fun to join us live on the YouTube streams at youtube.com slash swansignal. Head over there, subscribe, and turn on notifications so you don't miss an episode. You can also listen live on Twitter spaces. Find at swanbitcoin on Twitter. You can subscribe to this podcast if you're not already at swansignalpodcast.com or just search Swan Signal in your podcast app. Join us at Pacific Bitcoin, the Bitcoin conference that Swan is throwing November 10th and 11th in Santa Monica, California. Go to pacificbitcoin.com and use the code Brady, B-R-A-D-Y, to get a discount. Check out Swan for easy recurring savings plans, concierge services for businesses and high net worth individuals at swan.com slash private. Swan Advisor Services helps financial advisors add Bitcoin to client portfolios and manage accounts easily. Swan Signal is a production of Swan Bitcoin at swan.com. <laughs>